0: This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. It's your nature guru, Misha. Just kidding, I'm a little baby. Welcome back to Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. This episode, we go hiking in Minneapolis, home of the Dakota and Ojibwe indigenous peoples. And we're exploring what it means to find home through nature. Okay, so a few years ago, I was hanging out with a friend, let's call her Layla. Layla and I shared how we both came from immigrant families. I told her how my family and I moved to the United States from Pakistan in 2003. She told me about growing up in a Somali refugee camp. And then they packed up all their things and moved to Minneapolis. And I was like, Minneapolis? When I think Minneapolis, I just think cold, cold and very cold. So I was curious, why Minneapolis? If you're moving from a refugee camp to a whole other country, don't you wanna pick a place with a temperate climate or at least weather that's super similar to your home country? But Layla's family wasn't thinking about weather. They were seeking refugee status in the United States and Minnesota is a state that has a huge program for that, which I had no clue. I'm an immigrant. And I never knew that there was a state in the US that has a history for welcoming refugees. So Stephanie, our senior producer, and I started to dig. Who are all these refugees coming to Minneapolis? Not just from Somalia, but from all over the world. And how are they building a home here in this freezing cold city so far away from their homes? To find answers to these questions, to understand the story of the refugees who call Minneapolis home, we have to understand the story of the monarch butterflies who also call the city home. I didn't know much about monarchs until I read this book by a guy named Ocean Vong. It's called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. In it. He describes how the butterflies migrate from the Midwest and Canada all the way to Mexico. They do this every single year. Thousands of butterflies flying thousands of miles together. When Shang-Yu saw her first monarch, she was far away from her home country. She was studying the butterfly in a lab at the University of Chicago.
1: It was really impressive because the butterfly is huge. And then they're actually kind of strong. Even in a lab, she was blown
0: away. So in case you didn't figure it out, Shang-Yu spends her time studying butterflies in labs because she is a literal butterfly scientist.
1: I'm a third-year PhD student in University of Chicago studying ecology evolution. I'm interested in how North American butterfly will change their migration behavior or their flying efficiency or also their wing morphology under a different environmental factor.
0: Okay, let me put that in simpler words. Non-scientists speak.
1: Monarch butterflies have been migrating
0: for a long time. Longer than Western scientists actually know. But recently, some of them have started to change their behaviors. Some species are staying in places way longer than they used to. Others are dying more easily during migration. And some are literally not migrating at all. Shang-Yu is studying how and why monarch butterflies are changing, specifically how the environment is affecting their ability and their desire to migrate. What cities normally do these monarch butterflies like originate from? Where do they start migrating from?
1: So like Chicago, it's a place very common to see monarch butterflies. Most of them are from Midwest, and some of them will originate from Canada so these monarchs belong to places
0: like ontario and maine or the midwest like minneapolis they are born there that's where they do the whole caterpillar to butterfly thing
1: when the fall's coming they become adult butterfly which is when they're ready to migrate
0: but they don't just up and start flying when they feel like it they're waiting for a sign and these signs can be tiny
1: they will get some sense like maybe the decreasing temperature, maybe the decreasing daylight—something which we are still not very sure about—they sense the environmental changing, and they found this place is no longer an ideal place to survive. Maybe so, then they start this journey from north side of the United States all the way to Mexico.
0: A half a million butterflies. This generation. Scientists call them the Methuselah generation. They all migrate together, starting in places like Minneapolis. And then they fly to the exact same mountainous region in Mexico. Imagine like a giant family reunion for butterflies there. And guess when they get to Mexico? Dia de los Muertos, the day of the dead. So if you don't know, The Day of the Dead is a traditional Mexican celebration. It's around the same time as Halloween, but it's not Halloween. It's not supposed to be spooky or somber. It's joyful and colorful. People decorate altars called ofrendas with colorful skulls and marigold flowers. They drink and they dance. And together they honor their ancestors. Families celebrate the legacy of their parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, who are no longer with them the people who got them to where they are. Some people say this tradition started with the Purapeca and Mazawa indigenous tribes because they believed that monarchs represented the souls of their ancestors visiting them from the afterlife. And it's so magical to see all these monarchs gathered together. Mexican butterfly conservationist Carlos Gottfried said, when you stand in a monarch sanctuary, your soul is shaken and your life has changed. So the butterflies celebrate like people, and then they stay in Mexico for a little while. They hibernate until the spring. And then the seasons start to change again. The butterflies notice the turn of the light or a little less food, and they know it's time to migrate again. But this time is different.
1: They fly a little bit back to Florida and Texas. And they lay eggs and die there.
0: Their eggs turn into caterpillars, into butterflies. And they keep on flying north. Ocean Vuong writes in his book, the monarchs that fly south will not make it back north. Each departure, then, is final. Only their children return. Only the future revisits the past. The children fly back to a home they never grew up in. Home to them is just a distant memory passed down to them by their parents, through stories, through feelings, through something in their genes. But these children, they take the baton and they finish this relay race across generations. They go back home and honor their ancestors, knowing whose legacy they are honoring, knowing whose shoulders they stand on. I myself am a migrant, my family and I moved from Pakistan. I'm mm-hmm. curious if like, as you study monarch butterflies, you as a migrant, like, do you
1: ever think about how you relate to their experience? Those butterfly, they knows where to go and when to leave, which is something very impressive to me. <laughs>
0: I've thought so much about migration, about my parents making the decision to leave Pakistan when I was little. What was the tiny sign, the knowing that told them, now is the moment where we can leave our home behind. Leave everything we've worked for, our community, our friends, and start a new life. My parents' story, Shang Yu's story, it's not just ours. So many migrants leave their home countries Because they know their homes are no longer a place where they can thrive, live, or even survive. And then they arrive in a new place and have to find ways to make it feel like home. And nature becomes the one thing that is constant. That connects them to the land, to the city. That helps them settle and establish roots. It takes so much resilience to do this. And it's that resilience, especially in hard moments, that connects the migrants and the monarchs. They take a giant leap of faith and risk it all with only hope in their pockets. Sometimes they risk even their lives. This story of migrants plays out profoundly in Minneapolis, where half a million immigrants and refugees live. And these people have moved from over two dozen different countries, Luisiana Mendez Escalante is one of the new migrants. She moved to Minneapolis from Venezuela, and she
2: found her home in the city through hiking. I just was following the path, and I saw a lake. And and was impressed because winter, cold, many people was there just walking, running, doing many things. And also the lake was frozen, and people was walking on the lake and doing cross-country ski or any other sports, I can believe that. He's like, this is people's crazy. (laughs) But we'll come back to her story later in the episode.
0: First, we're going to go back in time to the very first Hmong refugee who came to Minneapolis. It's February, 1976. Minneapolis is snowy and sub-zero, frigid cold. As usual, Lang Wong has been traveling for over a day. He's coming from his hot and humid homeland of Laos. He gets off the plane and is literally blown away by the cold. He struggles to breathe, to open his eyes. But this is his new home. He's coming to the United States as a refugee from Laos after the war in Vietnam and Laos. And he's Minnesota's first Hmong refugee. The Hmongs are an indigenous population in China and Southeast Asia. I didn't know this story. Stephanie told me about Minnesota's long history of welcoming people who were fleeing their home countries.
3: So the thing is, Minnesota started bringing in refugees after World War II. Wait, why? I talked to Rochelle King, who is the refugee coordinator at the Department of Human Services, and she told me,
4: First refugee population started arriving after World War II based on a federal program, the Federal Displaced Persons Act, which was really in response to resettle people fleeing fascism.
3: So basically, European refugees from former Nazi-occupied countries, places like Germany, Italy, and Austria. But these things aren't happening in a vacuum.
4: So the history of resettlement in Minnesota mirrors somewhat what's going on in the world.
3: And the federal government is the one who decides who gets to come here and how many people they're willing to accept. After World War II, the states only allowed a limited number of people in. And when those people arrive, Minnesotans really rally to help them. If you talk to people around Minnesota, they remember their
4: church congregations meeting families at train stations who had been fleeing different parts of the world and that their faith communities came together to welcome and resettle people.
0: Wow, Minnesotans really are nice. Okay, but how does this lead to Hmong refugees coming to Minnesota? Because I feel like the U.S. traditionally is pretty good about helping Europeans, but we've kind of bristled at the thought of other kinds of immigrants.
3: So the next significant wave of refugees comes in the 1970s, during the Vietnam War. It's actually 1976 when a refugee named Lang Wong comes to Minnesota. He becomes the first Hmong to settle here, and he starts a trend. After that, Minnesotans then formalize the process. In 1979, they're like, hey, let's create the indo Refugee Resettlement Office, which is the old name for Rochelle's office now. And then President Jimmy Carter makes a big move. He signs the Refugee Act of 1980. What is that? So it's a law that raises the number of refugees allowed in the U.S., Like by a lot, basically from 17,000 to 50,000, which still doesn't sound like a lot, but it also gives the president the power to exceed that limit if necessary.
4: 1980 actually was one of the largest resettlement years. Almost 6,500 people were resettled to Minnesota in 1980, and those
3: were mostly Hmong. And as a refugee himself, Lang dedicates so much time to welcoming these newcomers. He actually has the station wagon, and he starts driving other Hmong refugees to their job interviews. By the time the 1990 census rolls around, there's almost 17,000 Hmong people living in Minneapolis. Then, in the 90s... Then we saw
4: an emergence of Bosnians, Liberians, and also people from Sudan. The other thing that was really happened in 1993, we saw the first Somali refugees being resettled to Minnesota.
0: Okay, serious question, not just because I'm from L.A. Why do all these people choose a place as cold as Minnesota?
3: Okay, well, some of these people don't exactly get to choose where they go. The U.S.
4: refugee admission programs places people in states, but people can choose whether they stay or not. Immigrants are mobile populations. They will leave if they don't find opportunities for their families here. Okay, so maybe the question isn't why they come. Why do they stay? So I think what makes Minnesota a great state for immigrants and refugees is the same thing that makes Minnesota a great state for
3: families. Great schools, plenty of jobs, and of course, the nature. And what's interesting now is that people aren't just staying. Refugees who have been placed in other states are actually deciding to move to Minnesota. What do you mean? Like
0: they're placed in, let's say, Idaho, but they're like, no, we'd rather move to Minnesota?
3: Yes, exactly. It's become such a welcoming place for refugees. Between 2013 and 2015, over 3,000 refugees moved to Minnesota from other states. And get this, that number was higher than all the other states combined. People are choosing to come here.
4: Minnesota has the largest Somali community in the Somali diaspora outside of Somali. We have the largest urban Hmong population outside of Laos.
0: That makes a lot of sense, actually. I feel like as an immigrant, when you are around other people like you, it makes it a little easier to be far away from home. Like when we first moved to the US, my parents mostly gravitated towards Pakistani friends. You know, they'd spent their whole lives in another country and being around Pakistani families made them feel like they had a sanctuary within this new country. A place where they could speak
3: their own language and eat their own food and and not have to try so hard, you know? Totally. And it's similar for the Minnesotan refugees. But also, let's be real. This isn't all Minnesota niceness. There's something in it for the state, too. I asked Rochelle. I keep hearing you use the term, like, the assets that the immigrant and refugee communities bring. And I really like that because I feel like people think about, like, accepting refugees as, like, a good deed, but it's also beneficial to the state. So could you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this question
4: because when you hear the term refugee, it triggers this image in your mind. And most often that image is around somebody fleeing persecution. What that image misses is the full picture of who a person is. A refugee is an experience, it's not a person. So it is a moment in time and a part of their story, but not their whole story. We know by experience in Minnesota that they become our co-workers, they become our neighbors, they become our legislators. We know that in Minnesota, had it not been for immigration to our state over the last 10 years, that our population would have decreased, right? And so people who are coming here are not just seeking refuge, but they are contributing to the vitality of our communities and actually essential for the long-term growth and
3: stability of our state. So the refugees come here and they're really good for the city and its economy. Like in what way? Okay, so as an example, in 1998, a group of Minnesotans opened the Carmel Mall. And at the mall, they have things like halal food, prayer spaces, and Somali tea. I mean, even the restaurants
0: here are so diverse. I've seen like indigenous food, Cambodian food, Indian
3: food. Yeah, it's great. We ended up eating so much good food in Minneapolis. But it's not just the food these refugees end up becoming important leaders. I'm sure you already know about Ilhan Omar, who is a congresswoman from Minnesota. But did you know that she was also born in a refugee camp? She literally escaped the Somali Civil War. She actually came to the US when she was 12. Like me, or I was 11. Yeah, and now she represents Minnesota in our government.
0: I feel like we've talked a lot about how great the program is, but is it really that perfect?
4: Well, nothing's ever perfect, right? There are no special benefits that people who arrive with refugee status get in the United States. They're eligible for human services supports like you and I are as residents of Minnesota. But it is essential
3: that they become self-sufficient through employment rather quickly, actually. And being a refugee is especially hard in today's political climate. St. Cloud's
2: in the news again for the wrong reasons, a New York Times story about pushback against Somali immigrants, including city council candidates who ran on anti-immigrant themes. A local immigration
4: attorney says she's concerned about the uncertainty that Ukrainians in Minnesota are facing.
0: Biden will turn Minnesota into a refugee camp. Well, Minnesota lawmakers are increasingly divided over how many, if any, Syrian refugees to accept here.
3: Well, the current government has opened up the doors for even more people. People from different countries, especially those who are being persecuted.
4: So one of those pathways that they recently created was for people from Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti to be able to legally enter the country and work while here through a status, which is a humanitarian parole status. We have seen increases in Minnesota as well for some of those populations. We've seen more Venezuelans. We've seen more Cuban arrivals, Nicaraguan arrivals as well.
2: Like Louisiana Mendez Escalante. So I think here inside Venezuela, having the the same trouble, I can help nobody. Maybe if I am outside, I can find new opportunities. I can help more. Help my family, help my friends, or help my community. We'll go hiking with Louisiana after the break.
0: know about you, but I'll never look at another monarch butterfly the same or underestimate the power of nature after my experience in Minneapolis. Louisiana, and the community members of Wayas Latinas opened my eyes to how the outdoors can connect people from all around the world and create spaces that feel like home, a concept I know should not be taken for granted. I share Louisiana's hope, as I'm sure many listeners do too, that all of us are able to access the power of nature not too far from our doorstep. That's where Subaru comes in. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance, plus comfy water-repellent interiors are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com slash wilderness. No? Do you like the snow?
3: Yeah. Yeah?
0: What do you like to do in the snow?
3: Uh, jumping. Jumping? Yeah,
0: I
2: like jumping. It's 30
0: degrees in Minneapolis. Snow and ice is everywhere yet there's someone who just ran past me in shorts
1: sometimes we get snowstorms in may so we just you know we prepare for it and just take it in <laughs> accept it
0: i guess we all have different ideas of what warm is today i'm hiking with Luisiana mendez escalante She's wearing a black hiking jacket with her long brown hair flowing behind her. Louisiana is the founder of a hiking group called
2: Huellas Latinas. Huellas Latinas means Latino footprints. Our purpose is to encourage people to try outdoor activities in Minnesota, more focus on Latino community and immigrants and refugees.
0: Louisiana started Huellas Latinas in 2021. This was just a few years after she moved to the United States. She moved because she was seeking asylum from Venezuela.
2: Will you tell me a little bit about, like, your childhood? I grew up in Venezuela. The name of the city is El Vigía. We are sort of on the mountains, Antins Mountains. It's so green all the time, um, hot weather. And also we have a lot of, of trees uh, and parks around the city. I can say mix about city, farmer, and, and mountains. Her dad is a forest engineer.
0: He was super into nature, so he took Louisiana and her family to different parks
2: around the city. This was basically every weekend during her childhood. We visit the lakes and the forest. So he teach us the love of the nature and the respectful of the nature. Most of the time was hiking, a little hiking or, or picnic. Also, we go with family group and make food, like barbecue, and running around, playing around. I think the more important memory I have is about spend time with the big family around the, the lake.
0: She's definitely a nature kid, but she's also fascinated by cities. When she grows up, Louisiana decides to become a civil engineer and a city planner. She's especially curious about how cities interact with nature, what makes them beautiful. And in her own city,
2: she sees a lot of challenges, problems that she wants to solve. The political and social situation in my country is not anymore safe for everybody. Clouds of tear gas protesters throwing stones, a situation that appears to be spiraling out of control. We are in a dictatorship. We live in a dictatorship.
3: Now the longest nationwide power outage in world history. Schools
2: and businesses are closed. Food is so expensive, many look for their next meal
3: in the garbage. For Venezuelans, the hunt for medicines is
1: desperate. Meanwhile, those protests yesterday underlined the real fear in Caracas tonight, that all of this may soon only get worse.
2: Year by year, the situation is worse and worse and worse.
0: But Luciana is a civil engineer and urban planner. She uses her skills to try to problem solve. She thinks it's possible to fix the issues in Venezuela. So she starts educating people on their rights. She starts an organization called Wevés de Ciudad. In English, it means City Thursday.
2: It's a radio and TV show. And I'm pretty sure... It aired on Thursdays. We have the opportunity to speak to more people and say, that is how good city works, and that is what we need to do to improve our situation. I teach people and the community about the city rights. Like, you have the right to have electricity, water, or good education, or the right to have a clean city. And this does not go over well. In Venezuela... Speaking out is dangerous. For me, it was a little hard when I started to receive bad messages from the organization who support the actual government, like they tried to treat me about stop doing that. I spent a very hard time handled that situation. I can apply for any job because I was in the blacklist. But she really doesn't want to leave. She still has hope for her country. We fight, and we make a protest. But still, nothing changes. We have many people who have spent months and months in in the street fighting for our rights, and nothing happened. We lost. We lost many people who the government used, shut down. These people died. And we have many other people who are in jail right now, disappear and we don't know where they are and i need to understand that and accept that situation and just try to to find another way how i can help my people so i think here inside venezuela having the same trouble to my people i can help nobody maybe if i am outside i can find new opportunities i can help more help my family help my friends or help my community When did you leave Venezuela? I left Venezuela five years ago. So my friend, Juan Carlos, he know everything about Venezuela, about the political situation. For many years, he talked to me and offered him to come here. Hey, you have to leave Venezuela. I talked with him and say, yeah, this is worse. I, I'm scared for my life, for my freedom. So I need to leave the country. And he say, yeah, you come here. I come here and apply for political asylum, and I start my journey like a refugee in Minnesota.
0: Her friend, this guy Juan Carlos, the one who convinces her to leave, has been living in Minneapolis for a few years now. So Louisiana has
2: actually been here before. I think in 2012 to visit my friends just for one weekend, and I fell in love of this city. Because I am urban planning, so I can see everything organized, everything clean, everything worked perfectly. Well, in, my, <laughs> in that moment, my perception. And I can see all people in the street running, uh, riding the, the bike around the lakes. And I, and I really love, I, in that moment, I say, oh, I would love to live in some place like this in some point in my life. And it's curious how, six years after that, I am here and I be able to do all the things I saw in that moment.
0: You know, one of the things that stuck out to me most while talking to Shangyu, Yu, the butterfly scientist, was that the monarch butterflies always know when it's time to leave. It's something all immigrants and refugees share. There was a moment when these migrants, the human ones, knew it was time to leave when they had given everything to fight for a better future in their own country. And they knew it wasn't gonna work for them anymore. And so they made the really hard decision to start over. And not just start over somewhere that's familiar, but somewhere thousands of miles away. Somewhere with a different language and customs and clothes. Somewhere with totally different weather. Somewhere they have to build a home, build a community, build a sense of belonging. Louisiana arrives in the winter, February 2018. Yes, the worst time of year you could arrive in Minneapolis. But
2: Juan Carlos is there to help. I live with my friend Almo for one year, and he teach me everything, how to take the bus, how to navigate in the GPS. We don't use GPS in a small city in Venezuela. So yeah, um, I start to learn about how to drive Minnesota. I can see myself like a baby. <laughs> We go to the cafeteria or, or a restaurant. I can order my own food. I don't speak any English in that moment. In my first days here, was about go to the to the restaurant and I want, I don't know, fruit juice, like strawberry juice or something like that. But besides ask directly for what I want, I ask for what kind of things they have because go back to Venezuela, we don't have nothing, so we always want to ask, do you have orange juice? Do you have strawberry juice? And probably they say, no, we just have water or lime juice or something like that. So I remember my friend say, Luzana, you are not in Venezuela anymore. Ask for whatever you want. We have everything here. I he said, oh my God, <laughs> that's, that's hard be able to eat good food uh, and the restaurant I feel guilty just thinking about my family or my friends they don't have good food or or enough food to eat or go to the grocery store and see all the food there for example the cereal you can pick for any cereal any brand every kind (laughs) and yeah that is a you know different view different perspective and very hard feeling in that moment. She's feeling a ton of culture
0: shock. And then she starts to experience a bit of survivor's guilt of all the people struggling at home. Why do I get to experience all of this? But she does have support, not just from Juan Carlos, but from Minnesota. Remember what Rochelle, Minnesota's refugee coordinator told us? The state is also really good at welcoming refugees.
2: I went to the International Institute of Minnesota and this institute have more than 100 years in Minnesota helping the immigrants and refugee people. And they offer us English class, but also cultural class, pronunciation class, conversation class, driving class. All the services you need to live in this country and this state, they offer. And that's just great. Learn about the credit If you don't have credit in this country, you are nobody. (laughs) That is why it's something simple, maybe common and basic for people who grow up here. But for us, we need to learn everything. Luciana starts to learn about her new city.
0: But she's also dealing with feelings of homesickness. She knows how to drive, how to get a credit card, how to interact with police in America. But she doesn't yet feel like she belongs, you know? Minneapolis doesn't feel like home yet.
2: I feel frustrated, sad, missing my family and my life in Venezuela. I am very uh, a spiritual person. So I just thinking about God and thinking about what I say in that moment was Abre los caminos y derriba los muros. So open the roads and turn down the the walls. So she decides to do something about it. Classic Louisiana. She's someone who problem solves. She starts to explore the city. She's a city planner, after all. I start to explore in the museum and take out little walks around the lake. Tell me about these walks around the lake. <laughs> <laughs> One day, I think it was two weeks after I arrived here. I saw on the map. I have a church close to home. I say, I have to, to go there. I need I need to feel Something spiritual in in this moment. When I arrived to the church, the church was closed. It's different to my country. In my country, usually the church is open and you can go in. Here is closed, and I don't know how to go in. And was cold, (laughs) and winter cold. I want to go in. She calls the church. No
0: one speaks Spanish. Eventually, she reaches one of the parishioners. He invites her in and shows her
2: a little chapel. And she sees a familiar face. In Latin America, usually we have a patron, like St. Patrick's or St. Pablo. The patron saint of each city guides and protects the people who live there. And right there,
0: in this random chapel in Minneapolis, Luciana sees a statue.
2: It's the same patron saint as her hometown. And I start to cry. And that moment I say, OK, I'm in a good place and a con so she leaves the church feeling
0: much better and she decides to take a walk reflect a little bit i just
2: was following the path and i saw a lake and and was impressed because winter cold many people was there just walking running doing many things and also the lake was frozen and people was walking on the lake and doing Cross country ski or any other sports. I can believe that. He's like, this is people's crazy. <laughs> She's kind of inspired by these people,
0: the ones who are skiing and skating on the frozen lake and hiking and running
2: in the winter. I was exploring the parks and I can see research and information about hikers and hiking. Ah, what I'm doing is not just walk, I am doing hiking. I want to be a professional. What an overachiever. So I research for many um, challenge. She Googles and puts
0: out asks on Facebook and tells all of her friends. And when you ask, the
2: universe answers. At least the internet does. She finds out about this challenge. The goal is to hike one time a week through 52 weeks to the year. It's called the 52 Hike Challenge, and it's super famous in the outdoor
0: community. It was founded by two people, Carla Amador and Philip Stinnes. Carla founded the organization with Philip after discovering how healing hiking can be for her. In 2013, she was going through a divorce, and hiking was one of the few things that made her happy. So she decided to do one hike a week. And that's how the idea was born. Now it's a thing other people can do. The challenge invites people from all over the world to sign up online and then Get outside and hike. If you complete it, you get a medal mailed to you, and
2: obviously, you also get to brag. They don't go deeper in definition and standards about what kind of thing you call a hiking. They just say you can go out and walk more than two miles. That is a hike. Even if it's in your neighborhood or in the park or in a mountain or whatever you want. And I like that because made it way more inclusive for people. Let's remember... Louisiana
0: is brand new to Minneapolis. So she has to learn how
2: to hike in the city. Like, for example, where should she even go? And I go to the park in the winter, and most of the time I am lost. In Minnesota, the trail chains they use it from hiking or walking through cross-country ski. I was walking in the cross-country ski trail, and the ski just coming and say, hey, get out of the trail. And I was, oh my God, where are you going? So it was a journey to learning. What are you supposed to do in that situation? You're supposed to research and get the winter map. So it's not just one map. It's a summer map and winter map. Nobody told me about that. And now I teach people.
0: So did you start sharing this like on your social media or did you
2: tell people about that yeah. you're going to do this? I talk with my close friend and say, I will try this challenge. I need you to support me because I want to make this a big deal. This a, a purpose. I can't quit. I need to achieve the goal. And when my friends say, can we head out? Yes, of course. Go to hike. <laughs> and I start reading my friends hiking and I post every hike on social media. And, yeah, people just feel curious about what I'm doing. And people just ask me, can I go with you? Can you teach me? And that's so cool. Her group keeps getting bigger.
0: All these Latino immigrants and refugees who want access to
2: nature, who want community, but don't know how, they keep showing up. They say, well, I am living here for more than 10 years, and I don't know, more than three parks. (laughs) So that is the cool part. And this is how Latinas starts. So we explore different parks in different cities. Also, we are doing another activity depending of the season. Like in winter, we do the cross-country ski, snowshoes. Or during the summer, we did camping or kayaking. I recently made a survey in the community. And I can see more than half of the community live in Minnesota for more than one year but don't know the park system in Minnesota or the outdoor activities. And that is why they come to Guayas Latinas because they, they find the opportunity to connect with the, the state. Guayas Latinas isn't just a hiking club anymore. It has grown
0: into a whole community during the pandemic. Together, everyone in the organization goes hiking, skiing, snowshoeing,
1: my name is Catherine Pyre. My name is Esmeralda. Antonio. I'm Tanya Eden Pinheiro. My name is
3: Luisa. I never went out hiking. No
1: idea like how much we stay indoors because of the weather. I was living in Mexico City, so for me, hiking was just more a subway commute. So I needed to walk for my life.
3: Never walk. Never, never. For 20 years here, uh, Luisa and I can't, to start hiking. I bring my cakes, my husband. Oh my god, I've been to at least two or three hikes a month.
1: This spring, I expect to go on every single hike that Huellas Latina hosts. So I've
3: hiked more in the last year than I've done in the last 10 or 15. I know Minnesota more than ever. This is my family.
2: The sense of belonging, that being part of a community and being part of, like,
1: active in your city has truly changed the way I feel about being here. I love to be with
2: the community is so amazing how we connect. Sometimes <laughs> we, we just want to hug people and the topics we talk about, food, about our culture, fighting about where is the arepa from. It's originally from Venezuela, from Colombia, but of course, always, I went it's from Venezuela. <laughs> Even when everybody in the group is Latino and we speak one language, it's so funny how we learn each other about wars means something in one country, but means another thing in another country. Yeah, I don't know, it's just feel warm with people.
0: It's one thing to assimilate to a new place. It's another to actually find a piece of home in that new place. Louisiana starts to find home through nature. She hikes all over Minneapolis, and she gets to know the city on foot. You know, a few months ago, I hiked the Camino de Santiago with my partner Esteban's family. It's a spiritual through-hiking trail in the north of Spain. It takes you from one city to another, to another, to another, and you can stop in different cities at night. I had never hiked that much or gotten to know a place like that on foot. To walk from town to town, to meet the people who live there, to hear their stories. It's just such a different type of connection to a place. And I feel like that's what Louisiana experienced. She spent time with the trees and the snow and the birds and the butterflies. She hiked past the museums and the churches and the libraries. And she did that in community with other people who needed that sense of belonging. People who speak her language. People who remind her of where she comes from. But being reminded of home is also tough, you know? Because thinking of home means thinking about what you left behind. For Louisiana, what she left behind. Her country, her siblings,
2: her parents, specifically her mom. I think for here it's more difficult to take the decision to start over. I say goodbye not just to my family and friends. I say goodbye to my career, my business, my my home. And I start over in a very... Optimist way I think for here she don't speak English she don't know nobody here and also she is very optimistic optimistic in a different way optimistic about my country situation will change but you know five years happened since I left my country and the situation is worse and worse but I hopefully I hope and one day she decide to come here and stay here do you worry about her? Absolutely. Every single day of my life. It's hard for me to listen all the bad stories about, we have two months without water. You know? Water. Or when she say expression like, I am happy it's raining today to catch raining water, to take the shower or something. So that is, it's hard. And I take that moment to say, you don't need to be there. You deserve better life. That is not good for you and for everybody. Have your mom or sister had a chance to come visit you here? I think it was one year, in 2021. My dad and my monk have the opportunity to come here during the summer. In that moment was my first year trying the 52-hike challenge. I don't know how, but my last hike of the challenge, my dad and my mom arrived to Minnesota, and we hiked together. In the end of the challenge, we opened a little gift from the, the medal and all this thing. It was cool, it's special to share that with them. And they have the opportunity to see what I am doing here with the community.
0: Unlike the monarchs, Louisiana's parents get to see their little butterfly make a home in a new place. They get to see the sanctuary and the community that she's built.
2: They just call me Niña Exploradora, <laughs> the exploring girl. And they are happy. My dad recognized the, the trees and the flowers. And he say, I want to have your job. <laughs> I can do what are you doing very easily. I know that part now it's my
0: time. Luciana <laughs> took her dad's legacy and took it further. She took a risk, started over, and made a home in a whole new place. She stands on the shoulders of her ancestors, of her parents. And she's aware of every person back home who didn't get to fly away, who is still in Venezuela fighting. Sometimes she wants to be back there with them to feel what they're feeling to remember where she came from.
2: So she closes her eyes, breathes in the fresh air. It's about the color. In the summer, when it's hot and very green, and the sunset and the sunrise, I can imagine my own country. And some nights, we can have the opportunity to see the stars in the sky.
0: And she's transported back home. I can say,
2: oh my God, it's like my home.
0: This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Exploring nature in cities across the U.S. has been an unforgettable adventure. From hiking the secret stairs in LA to camping on the outskirts of Chicago, none of it would have been possible without my 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance Plus, a comfy and water-repellent interior are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com wilderness. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Jules Bradley and Valeria Aller Cohn provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd.